Heavy rains and significant snowmelt caused widespread flooding too soon for many after the disaster in July. It's heavy and it's sad and it's anxious. I've been through rainstorms, I've been through floods, but July really kind of like has just kind of left a really big mark in my brain. And so now immediately once it starts raining, I'm already like, okay, do we have evac bags packed? We got lucky this time. At least that much I can be thankful for that I can actually have a Christmas here with my family and not be worried about where we're going to have Christmas. Plus, the state's unemployment system goes on the fritz again. And lawmakers prepare to return to the state house right after the first of the year. We'll talk about some of their priorities ahead on Vermont This Week. From the Vermont Public Studio in Winooski, this is Vermont This Week. Made possible in part by the Lintelac Foundation and Milne Travel. Thanks for being with us. I'm Mark Johnson. It's Friday, December 22nd. Joining us on our panel tonight, Ann Wallace Allen. She's the business reporter with Seven Days. Calvin Cutler covers politics for WCAX and Lisa Scalotti is the editor of the Waterbury Roundabout. Thank you all for joining us. Well, it did feel a little bit like deja vu all over again. More flooding topping our news again this week. Um, and start us off here. Let's talk about the physical part about this, where the damage was. Was it as bad as July? And what did we, um, what did we know about that? Well, um, the, the flooding was a little bit different this time around because in July it was quite localized in some areas in southern Vermont and, of course, in central Vermont. Uh, so a few towns were hit very, very badly, or a few regions were and in July. And this time around it was much more widespread. It was all over the—it was in many, many areas of the state. Lake Champlain rose by a foot as a result of all of the rain that we got. Again, we were just got a dumping of rain in one day, although, of course, it was two inches, not nine or ten inches, as we heard about in July. But so we actually um, did not experience the kind of damage that we did last time around. Part of that is because while people in Montpelier had flooded basements again downtown, this time around, they didn't have all of that inventory stored in the basement of their stores. So, and also a lot of the electrical systems and other utilities had been moved up since then. So I guess you could say we were a little bit more ready, but again, there was the runoff that flooded people's basements. Um, and one of the sort of scary and startling things, like the young woman was saying in that voiceover, is that, you know, there was a sort of sense of PTSD about this happening again, having the roads closed again, um, wondering how you're going to get home. Because if you had to go home, uh, if you had to detour home around a road like Route 2 that was closed, you're on a dirt road that's thawing and it's been raining all day and it, the roads were, were sort of impassable. So there were, there were still a lot of scary and unpredictable things about this. And there was, there was localized damage to things like yards and, uh, but you didn't, you didn't see bridges being washed out and cars being washed down the river like you did before. A lot of fields are flooded. Lisa, Waterbury got hit pretty hard in July. What, what happened this time around? Well, you know, a lot of the same businesses, a lot of the same properties um, got hit this time around, just like in July along Main Street. Um, I think a lot of the news outlets carried pictures of our um, entry into Main Street um, in downtown near the roundabout and the, our park and our town's offices where 
couple cars got stuck when people decided to go too far into the, the water and they got stuck there. Um, it was hard getting through Waterbury. A lot of people who don't live there still travel through Waterbury, so it was very confusing to some people where Main Street was closed in different, in different spots because of flooding. Um, to know where the, to go around. Um, so it was it was sort of a, a, this sort of um, moving situation all day long to try to figure out what's open, what's closed, and, and how to get through. Um, but at this point, you know, same sort of situation where I think a lot of the businesses and even homes didn't have as much stuff in their basements as they did before. So they're pumping out and cleaning. But as an example, our town ordered one big dumpster for our uh, Randall Street neighborhood in downtown wow. Waterbury. There were five this summer. Wow. So they think they can work out of one right now because there's just not as much stuff left to trash in people's basements. But it's still a lot of cleanup, and they're going to have to go through that whole process again now, right? Um, yeah. Calvin, you seem to be everywhere all the time around the state. What, what did you What did you notice this yeah. time around? I mean, I was mostly down in the Mad River Valley, down in, in Wastefield, and also up in Moortown. A lot of time in Barrie, Montpelier as well. I think Anne really hit the uh, the nail on the head about you know. The, the trauma that I think a lot of people went through during this past storm. I remember being there on Berlin Street in Barrie um, with a couple of people, you know, that were just watching the, the Stevens branch of the Winooski River rising, and everybody just had this thousand-yard stare of, oh, no, oh, no, the water's rising. Oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? And, I mean, this is the second time in five, just five months that we've had these, you know, granted, basements flooded. We didn't see the same type of... of um, of, of damage, but this is the second really high water event that we've had in, in the past five months. A lot of people are still concerned about the spring thaw and sort of what mud season will bring. Um, you know, what, what's that going to look like? For, for a lot of homeowners and renters that I was talking to, um, you know, there was a lot of trauma, a lot of PTSD, and a lot of big questions about, you know, will we be able to stay in our house year over year if we if we're, we flood two, three, four times a year, maybe. So I think that was one of my big takeaways. Um, it, it was good to see, you know, a lot of the utilities and inventory, and we were a little bit more prepared, a little bit more resilient for, for this flood. But uh, still, I mean, it, it does raise questions for places like Marshfield, Plainfield, Montpelier, Barrie, um, the Mad River Valley. You know, how, how do we make our communities more resilient? Speaking of that trauma, Ashley Rees of Cambridge really captured it quite well. Just to keep watching it creep up when you thought it was going to stop makes your heart stop sometimes. And you think about everything you've already lost, everything you might be losing if it doesn't stop. That's our whole life. That's our whole life in that house. And we've already lost it once less than six months ago. So let's let's not, you know. So, Calvin, is this just the way it's going to be in Vermont from now on? Yeah, that's that's the million dollar question, right? I mean, there is definitely this coming session. There's going to be a big focus on you know, flood mitigation, resiliency, trying to restore floodplains and forests and, and wetlands to try to, you know, from the governor's way of, of thinking about this is trying to let water flow and, and to, you know, build more capacity for, for water. Um, but, you know, these are really expensive projects that are going to take a lot of federal money and it's going to take a lot of time. And, you know, I think until that happens, um, you know, that, that might be the case for, for some people. But, I mean, it, it, it is really challenging to have to think about this, going through this once, twice, three times, maybe more. Um, so I wish I had a better answer for you. But, yeah, it, it, it's a real challenging situation that Vermont finds itself in. And I think, um, yeah, we'll have to see what, what happens. How would you respond to that? Well, um, it's, it's, it's really 
those are big projects that uh, when you talk about what are you going to do about flooding, the, uh, it's it's a global problem. But I think there's there they've learned a few lessons from what happened in July. So one of the things that lawmakers are looking at is um, better regulation of dams, because, of course, uh, we need to make sure that we have more than a thousand dams in the state and we need to make sure that they're all in good uh, condition and that they are being monitored properly and that there are procedures in place when the water is rising so far that you might you have to let out some of the water because if, if a dam failed that could be really really devastating to some of the communities downstream and another area that um, I know that uh, representative Catherine Sims of Crestbury is talking about is streamlining the emergency services, which, um, you know, th that's not a, a, a perfect, that puzzle, it's a puzzle that doesn't always fit perfectly together. It's, these are things that have grown up organically. And uh, so having the right points of contact and just having, uh, having a, a process which they could start in the legislature of getting that um, to work a little bit more smoothly is um, another thing that could come out of this. You mentioned the dams, and, and I think some of that requires um, a better idea of information going into a storm and the forecasting. One of the things that we noticed with the storm, and there was a little bit of this in July, but it was really mind-boggling. Our select board met um, early in the day on Monday to try to get a game plan, and they're looking at those charts, you know, to show the, the river gauge on the Winooski and what the forecast is, and every hour there's a real-time observation. And, and they're trying to get a sense of, well, how bad is it going to be? What do we need to tell people? So they're trying to prepare. Um, but at the same time, we're watching the observations kind of climb in the straight line, and the, the observations are now surpassing the forecast. And so at that point, you're sort of in uncharted territory, right? So they're like wondering, how, how long will this continue to be a straight line up? Um, and when is it going to start to you know, level off and come down? But the forecasts weren't keeping up with the real-time observations. So I feel like there's, there needs to be maybe a technology discussion in that as well, because they've been talking about gauges and whether the gauges are the best technology that we could have, how old are these things, should they be different technology that could be giving us better information so that the emergency people could be preparing for that and things like dam decisions could be, you know, made in, you know, with some foresight. Speaking of technology, people were concerned back in July about the 211 system where you call in to get information. Mm -hmm. How well did that work this time around? Yeah, I mean, from what we understand, uh, there really didn't seem to be any issues with 211 this time around, just because, uh, number one, we didn't see the, the level of, of damage and, and catastrophic flooding like we did uh, back in back in the summer. Um, you know, certainly 211 still has its, its limited, you know, times that they're open. You can only call during a certain amount of hours. Um, so it didn't really seem like there were any issues with 211. And I think it's just important to note, too, that with this storm, uh, you know, State leaders are still encouraging people to report any and all damage to 211. That's still an important factor here because, you know, to, to Anne's point, you know, basements flooded. There was still some damage. And so, you know, it's going to be interesting or it's going to be important for Vermonters to continue to report that damage to see if we'll get some sort of declaration from, from the federal government. But I guess from the 211 side of things, it, it seems to have gone pretty smoothly. But that said, there's still moving and active discussions about what role 211 should play in the state's emergency communication system. Should we give more resources to 211 and have that be the, the, the end all be all? Or you know, should we have more regionalized uh, emergency communications or, or others? So yeah, it's um, a moving conversation. Did this reach the FEMA level stage of, of damage and concern? Well, the governor held a press conference uh, after the day after this flooding, and he said that he is, um, you know, communicating with 
uh, the feds about whether or not this is going to earn Vermont another disaster declaration. And, but I, it's not going to be like in July because there aren't going to be people with as many ruined appliances and uh, uh, home repairs and things that need, uh, need that kind of FEMA presence, not like we had before. But yeah, that's still an open question. The governor was also using the term climate change. Climate change is real. We're going to see more um, of these intense storms. There is a common theme here, and it's in those low-lying areas uh, with substantial volumes of water in those streams. This is a Republican governor using the term climate change. Surprise you? No, not at all, um, because uh, I don't think there's that many people. I, I don't hear that many people denying climate change at this point, and he's always been fairly pragmatic, um, more He'll say what he thinks is happening more than he'll adhere to whatever his party is trying to get everyone to say thinks is happening. Do we? Do you hear anybody saying that this is not climate change? This is just a blip. Uh, it's, it is, and it's you know it's important. I think it's important for him to show that leadership because then we can uh, all plan together on how to not only to uh, respond to what's happening in our climate, but also to look for ways to prevent the problem from getting worse. What happened in Moortown with oh. the elementary school? In Moortown, uh, we had a, a bad track record of about, what, three Mondays in a row with storms, right? Snow, power outages, that sort of thing. This Monday came. Um, rain had been falling since Sunday afternoon. Kids got to school on Monday morning around 7.30 or so. Um, within a few minutes before 8 o'clock, the principal at Moortown Elementary School was on the phone with the superintendent saying, there's water outside um, inches from our gym. Um, and the water was coming up on the school property. It's, it's on, this, on this campus where it's the lowest spot on the property. Um, and there's a stream that runs by that goes into the Mad River, which is nearby, and that stream was filling up. Um, so by 8.30, children in Moortown were being dismissed. Um, and the water then proceeded to enter the building. It um, got about two to three feet deep in the basement where they have the boilers for the school. Um, and then it filled the first floor. So not, not too deep, but it just enough to kind of hit all the classrooms, hallways. That's muddy, gross water. And so it's just enough to make a mess. Um, but they did manage to, in the 20 or so minutes that they had to sort of scoop up, the teachers were able to, I could just sort of pictured little children all picking things up. There's, there's pictures of all the stuff in the classrooms up on tables. Um, so they were they managed to get as much up off the floors as possible so to minimize that damage But right now they have to figure out um, Fixing the boilers cleaning it out drying it out and then figuring out what to you know What the the ETA is to get kids back in that building after New Year's Wow. speaking of FEMA um, They've abandoned plans to set up this temporary housing in Montpelier Why yeah, I mean it's it, that's been sort of a, a, a slow-burning conversation as you know, of course from this summer's floods, there was over $600 million in damage. We got that final number. of That's how much it cost public infrastructure. There was about $25 million that's been paid out to homeowners and, and people who were hit by the floods. Uh, mobile homes, of course, were slammed as well. The state and FEMA have been scrambling to try to place people in these temporary FEMA trailers. Uh, there has been a, a deal that was penned. There is ink on paper with the city of Montpelier and, um, and FEMA to place these these trailers up at the the golf course uh, up top, but uh, uh, or at the Elks Club that is in in Montpelier. But at the very beginning, when they were trying to find housing for people, you know, FEMA has cer cer uh, certain 
programs. They can either do FEMA trailers, they can you know, subsidize apartments, they can give people um, you know, money to fix up. So there's a number of levers that they call them. Uh, and, and General Roy this week said that at the very beginning, because our housing crisis was so bad, they just pulled every single lever they could. And so earlier this week, or I guess late last week, um, last Friday, FEMA got word from several owners of uh, mobile home parks that actually had capacity that could take these, these um, that, that could site 19 trailers. So that should be able to accommodate for all of the families that are still in need of housing. But I think there's still an open question though of why did it still take five months for them not to break ground on um, the, the, the Elks Club? And I think in part of that is because, you know, this is the first, you know, major, major flooding disaster that FEMA has been involved with here in Vermont that has required potentially these FEMA trailers. And so lining up contractors and labor and the logistics, um, you know, it's, it's been a learning curve for everybody. But at the end of the day, you know, Montpelier will be paid out about half a million dollars um, for, for that, for uh, the, the Elks Club. I think the term might be bureaucracy. Let's stick on that topic for a moment. The state's unemployment system, last week we were reassuring people that it was all okay. Another problem this week. Yeah, and, and this is it's, this is kind of a, a perennial challenge. It's not just for the Labor Department. I mean, it's a lot of state IT systems, certainly. There's issues of deferred maintenance, but you know, the, the people were struggling to file for, for unemployment. Uh, there was a certain population of people that were running into an error message. They fixed it for some people, but then that created what uh, um, Commissioner Michael Harrington described as a cascading effect where certain populations of people, you know, with other stipulations on their account were having trouble uh, applying. So, you know, really what it gets back to is changes that the state made during the pandemic to try to expedite some of the UI payments to, to claimants. Uh, those, those changes made a mark. So basically, um, you know, they're, they're still working to make sure everybody can, can file their unemployment claim. But at the end of the day, it does get back, I think, to this bigger question about how do we fund IT projects you know, on an annual basis like we do roads and bridges and, and infrastructure moving forward because people rely on these payments. What, what a fascinating story that came out of Newbury this week and this trying to cite a juvenile detention center. What, what's the, what do we know about that? Well, um, what to do with uh, young offenders or young people who are in need of a safe place when they're in a mental health crisis or another crisis is a, is a really a long running problem in Vermont, as we know, and we've um, we've seen some really sad stories about how there just isn't a place for these kids um, since the Woodside Center closed. Right. And, and um, so the state was looking at a structure in Newbury that they thought would work out well for them. And it's been they've been looking at it for a couple of years, and the opposition in Newbury has been fierce. Uh, residents are saying that they're, they don't think that they have the, a police force that's adequate um, in case there's any safety considerations associated with this facility, which I think would hold up just like um, a dozen or fewer um, young people. Um, just the neighbors have been fighting it tooth and nail, and now uh, it, it, it ended up in front of the Vermont Supreme Court, which has said, in fact, the state does have a right to cite this in Newbury. But uh, it doesn't sound as though anyone thinks the fight is over yet. Yeah, that is, that's true. They may, they're potentially looking at uh, maybe re-arguing in front of the Supreme Court, 
But I think at the same time, too, this has been kind of in limbo in, in front of the high court. The state is already moving forward with a temporary facility in Middlesex that was set up after Tropical Storm Irene when that hit the Waterbury State Hospital. That's been a, a mental facility uh, over the past few years. So now they're going to be citing, I think it's four uh, beds at that facility. So it, it's, um, yeah, more on this to come. We've been dealing with a lot of bad news this week in the past few weeks, even maybe the past few months. Let's try to maybe find something positive we can talk about here, particularly given the season. Um, we asked all three of you to think back, of course, over the course of the year and come up with a story that um, maybe warmed your heart, maybe made you laugh. Um, Lisa, let's start with you. Boy, um, you know, a, a really uplifting thing in Waterbury, aside from the floods, putting all that aside, is all the public art that's popped up in our town. If you've been in Waterbury lately, we've had a bunch of new murals. We've had children involved. It's been this, this um, sort of movement that's kind of spreading now to add more sort of color and personality and just joy, I guess. <laughs> um, and so there's a, whole, there's a whole bunch of new things like that happening in our town and they start to build on each other. And I think people are, it, it makes a difference. And it's, it's got involved a lot of people in the process. I think for me, it'd be not to harp on the, the flooding here, but you know, each county has sort of a, a long-term recovery coalition that they've been putting together. And in Washington County, uh, they have the Hope Coalition, which is a, a, a group of basically faith-based organizations and volunteers which have been coming together, and a lot of out-of-state, um, you know, out-faith groups as well that are still have a presence, and they're still working. You know, FEMA has stepped back for the most part, um, you know, from the immediate response, but yet, you know, recovery for each household takes a really long time. And so it's just been really, I did that story a few weeks ago, maybe a month or two ago at this point, but uh, it, it's been, it was really inspiring to see that recovery work continue and, and just, you know, the empathy of uh, these groups saying, hey, like we understand recover, this is going to take a long, long time. So I think, you know, to see organizations and nonprofits like them uh, reaching out to, to homeowners and renters and others, I think that was a brighter spot. Um, first, I have to echo what you guys said. The flood, I mean, it really did show. The, the, it, just, it was just really unbelievable to me living in Marshfield, how many people reached out and were trying to help and how many people called from out of state or from out of town saying, can I come and help with the dirty and hard work of right. fixing up yeah. in town? It was really, really nice. But also, much more frivolously, um, we had a very a story that brought a ripple of joy to thousands of people, judging by the Facebook likes and shares and clicks. Um, and that was that Rod Stewart was thought to have been cited in Virgin's wearing a pair of leather pants and um, uh, platform heeled boots with um, a woman who people thought was his uh, wife. But uh, and there were many there. So for a, a while, maybe like several hours or even a day, that was, the, it was b believed and we wrote a story um, saying that Rod Stewart had visited Virgin's and had lunch somewhere and bought a, bought a jacket from a secondhand store there. And then it turns out that he, actually Rod Stewart was playing in a concert in Madrid at the time that was not Rod Stewart. <laughs> it was a mysterious, um, diminutive, spiky haired impersonator who looked a lot like him. And I like, like, I mean, you have to be a certain age to even have an inkling of what Rod Stewart really does look like <laughs> or what he might sound like anyway. Yeah. And a lot of people didn't. And although it turned out not to be him, 
um, I really brought a lot of excitement and fun to uh, everybody who was wondering why he would be in Regenz in the first place and uh, just marveling that rock and roll greatness had visited our little state. I thought your colleague Chelsea Egger's story about joining the Bread and Puppet Resurrection Circus was a fantastic piece too. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about a story you thought really had a lot of impact. Um, and let's start with you. Well, I think um, Derek Brower has written a lot of stories about, uh, about the impact of the housing crisis. And the one he, he, went, he, he went around uh, Burlington with a sheriff whose job is to evict people who have fallen behind on their rent. And he did an amazing job of humanizing all of the bureaucrats and the functionaries and the sheriff whose job it is to um, ask these people to leave, but especially the people who, you know, we find out the various cascade of unfortunate reasons why they end up having to move out and what um, is going to happen to them. And it was snowing when he was when he was uh, touring around with the sheriff, and these people were leaving with their with their belongings in in bags. And it's I thought it was a really important way for everybody who's heading into the state house to talk about the housing crisis to see who it's affecting and how it's affecting them, including their kids. Calvin, briefly. You know, I would just say, not, not to, again, get back to flooding, but I think, you know, just for everybody in the press corps, uh, no matter what your medium is, um, you know, TV, print, web, I just think, you know, that was some of the greatest reporting and public service that I'd ever seen, you know, in my time in news of just getting real and real-time information out to people. Here's what roads are closed. Here's where the water is flowing. Trying to disseminate information from officials in real time, just like at the beginning of the pandemic. I have to, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I'm doing this often largely by myself with lots of help from people in my community. And in July especially, we were putting out so many pictures and so much information that people just volunteered to send. And we were triaging all that information. And to just sort of be that hub and to be collecting all that and putting it out, we had so much, um, so many people on our, on our website just needing to know what was happening in real time. Um, and I was just really grateful for how many people, without even asking, were just saying, here's where, this is where I see where I am, this is what I see where I am, and we were able to just put that out there. And it really helped people get around, and it helped people know where to go to start to help as soon as possible. Nice yeah. to end on a positive note. Ann Wallace Allen, Calvin Cutler, Lisa Scalotti, the Waterbury Roundabout. Thank you all for joining us. Coming up next week, Jane Lindholm will be hosting a program talking about the 10 top stories of the year. Thanks for joining us and happy holidays to all of you.